Welcome to the podcast, Finding Galileo, where we explore all things truth. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Dina Tavinarim. May this podcast find you wherever you're at on this journey of life. Enjoy. Today on Finding Galileo, I will be talking with Luis Cortez Romero about DACA, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. I am sure you have heard a lot about this in the news, and what DACA is is an executive order under Obama that stated certain people who were undocumented were able to be protected from removal or deferred if they met certain requirements. For example, having been in the U.S. by a certain date, having graduated high school or another equivalent, and having little to no criminal history. For example, a DUI or possession of a drug, marijuana, would disqualify you from DACA. DACA is not legislation passed by Congress and so cannot give these individuals legal permit resident status and is not a pathway to citizenship. In fact, under DACA, you cannot travel outside the United States without prior approval. And that is subject to approval. That doesn't mean it's going to be granted if you ask. Um, For people that do qualify, it gives them work authorization and a social security number, which would allow an individual, for example, to get a driver's license. Um, It really is a temporary Band-Aid, and legislation needs to be passed that will give these vulnerable people a pathway to residency and eventually citizenship. I hope you enjoy this conversation between Luis and myself. Um, hola, Luis Cortez Romero. Welcome to Finding Galileo. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm fine. Um, so just for the listeners on here, Luis and I, um, we met in law school in 2010. So over a decade ago, and I was a 2L and Luis was a 1L and who knew um, how our lives was, would unfold and how our paths would cross. We ended up working at the same firm for a little bit and we've helped each other with cases. Um, but Luis, can you, for people that don't know who you are, can you um, let people know what your job is, um, kind of right now what you're well known for? Sure. Uh, so my, my name is Luis and I, um, I work as a really trying to like find human rights for immigrants in different aspects. And, and a lot of that is done within the, the immigration courts, um, sometimes in federal courts, sometimes with the immigration agencies. And um, I think my, my work became a lot more prominent um, in 2017 after, after President Trump was elected. And, and there was then a series of of executive orders and policies and, and regulations that started to come about. Um, and I think the, the first real one I tackled was like a, like a few weeks after his inauguration, it was within 100 days where um, a young man by the name of Daniel Ramirez, who is a DACA recipient, he um, was falsely accused of being a gang member and had his DACA taken away. And, and we sued the government to try to get that restored and to, and to disavow um, the government's lies. And so that was one of the first cases that really kind of took off in a uh, national scale. And then from, from there, I was able to team up with these amazing group of, of, of lawyers um, 
in legal minds, including, um, uh, including you know, like Erwin Chemerinsky, who is well known as a constitutional scholar, and I think wrote everybody's constitutional law book in law school, um, and was able to work with him to then uh, really challenge some of Trump's policies. We were able to work on the child separation policy, where uh, immigrants were or parents were being separated from their children at the border, um, and eventually we're also worked on the DACA on the DACA case when the DACA program ended completely. We were the team that challenged that with, with a few others. We, we were uh, co-counseling with the state of California um, and a few other folks, but ultimately it was our case that reached to the Supreme Court. And I was very lucky to be able to be an active part of that and be at the Supreme Court um, with, with Ted Olson, um, who is known as a, as, uh, is notoriously known as a conservative. Um, he used to work for the Reagan administration and the Bush administration at the White House, and um, he was our co-counsel for, for DACA. So, so it, it kind of all took off from there uh, in 2017, and, and, and the work became a bit more well-known then. Now, um, for people that don't know, you have a personal stake in this um, because you're a DACA yourself. Is that right? Yeah, I, um, I am a DACA beneficiary. I, I'm, I'm benefiting and continue to benefit from the DACA program. It's, it's what's keeping me in the country. Um, uh, currently is the soccer program that feels like it's currently under attack. But um, yeah, so I, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, when I, when I got Daniel's phone call about him having DACA and him being falsely accused of being a gang member, it was like a Friday afternoon. It, yeah. It was like around, no, it was close to being Friday afternoon. It was like late morning. And we got a call from his brother uh, saying that my brother has DACA and they just took him, the ICE, the immigration police uh, took him. And we kept telling him he has a DACA, uh, he, he has protected under the DACA program and he has a work permit and they took him anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, I was uh, Daniel's brother's his name's Tony. I was Tony's like fifth call because he had called a bunch of other lawyers at the time. And it's kind of a pain to get down to the detention center. It's a whole process. It takes hours just to like go get processed, visit the clients, come back, put your notes together. And on a Friday, close to Friday afternoon. So for people that don't know, the Tacoma, I think Luis is talking about the Tacoma Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. It's the, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it. It's Seattle, okay. So, yeah. yeah. It's the, the Northwest Detention Center is one of the largest detention centers in the United States. Um, it's a for-profit detention center uh, run by the Geo Corporation. And so, yes. And it is very strict and annoying to get in and out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and so, sometimes you wait hours to see your client, literally. That's right. There, there's, <laughs> um, it, it at, when it's at capacity and it's usually at capacity, mm-hmm. there's about um, 1,500 people there and there's only six attorney visitation rooms. So if there's more than six attorneys waiting to visit their client, you're in line. Um, so most attorneys didn't want to go. And um, especially because it was on a Friday noon, and they just, just kept telling him like, we'll go Monday, don't worry about it. And uh, when he called me and he told me he had DACA and it was just suddenly taken, I remember thinking like, oh, like I would be really freaked out if I have DACA and I think I'm protected and secure. Uh, and that was the promise that the government made to me that as long as I, if I, if I give them all my information and I pass a background check and do all of that, that I would be protected. Um, and so I told them that I would go that same day. 
Um, and I went to go see him that same day. And um, that's how I was able to get Daniel as my client that ultimately really reached not just national, but international. And so, um, and so it was because of my personal stake in it that that kind of has, that's always, I mean, it, it's guided a lot of the work that I do and the perspectives that I have um, and, and how I approach clients and approach clients, client situations is, is how, I, you know, how I would feel in that. Now, was Daniel given an immigration bond or I can't remember? Yeah, he um, ultimately... Uh, he was granted a, an immigration bond after a two and a half hour bond hearing, which is a very long bond hearing. Typically bond hearings last like 15 minutes, right. 10, 15 minutes. And so there's a two and a half hour hearing where um, the Department of Homeland Security brought out their top lawyers to defend their position that he was a gang member. Um, they had three lawyers at the council table, which again is really unheard of. And, um, and we, yeah, we, we had a two and a half hour hearing and ultimately he was granted a, a bond. Not my bond, but he was granted a bond. Um, and so they put him in proceedings. So they were trying to essentially, I guess, strip him of his DACA status. Is that correct? That's right. They they wanted to deport him um, because they kept accusing that he was a gang member with no proof. And and and, and actually what happened is, is that the reason they were accusing him of a gang member was because of a tattoo that he had. Um, it was a nautical star um, that was blue and black. And on top, um, it said La Paz, which means the peace. And on the bottom of the star, there was writing, script writing that um, that had the initials B, uh, BCS, um, the letters BCS. And that stands for Baja California Sur, which is uh, where he was born. It's the state he was born in. And La Paz is the city he was born in. Mm -hmm. And the government should know that because they have all his information. He submitted his <laughs> and all that. And so, but they were accusing him of, of that somehow being gang related. And, and, and they couldn't, they, they, they had shifting stories. And that really resonated with me because I um, also have a lot of tattoos. Um, they, they go up and down my, my arms. and um, <laughs> Including a provident. Don't you have one that says fuck ice on you? I do. I do. I, do. I concur. Yes, that is that that is my political opinion. But um, it it uh, but I, I remember thinking even you know and in a cost my mind like I'm a big brown dude with tattoos on him and we live in a country where there's a criminalized identity for for black and brown folks and mm -hmm. I remember thinking. If I'm out walking somewhere, somebody's not going to think, oh, lawyer, and they're not going to ask questions. They might think, oh, criminal first. And mm -hmm. that's what happened to Daniel. Um, and then they, you know, the government got caught with egg on their face and they did not want to, to let up on it. And they doubled down on their accusations until we had to take it to federal court. Um, and so ultimately, how did they get on the government? I mean, how did, so Daniel, who has DACA, so normally, because for people that don't know, I used to do deportation defense as well. And so normally for somebody to go on proceedings, what I've seen typically is that they're either an undocumented person, maybe they're a resident or a DACA, and they get maybe a DUI or something like that. And because of, you know, a criminal charge or conviction, that's how they get on ICE's radar. So how did this person even, who's just living their life, um, all of a sudden get on ice's radar or get the government's radar 
Yeah, they were actually. Um, so Ice was looking for his dad, for Daniel's dad, because Daniel's oh. dad has um, a a colorful history. He has some some criminal, nonviolent drug offenses from many, 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 many years ago that is not, you know, continues to haunt him. And so Ice was looking for his dad. And his dad was out in the parking lot. He had just gotten home from dropping off their little brother at school. And when he got home, Ice approached him and said, hey, you know, let's go. And um, Daniel's dad said, well, let me say bye to my kids. He goes, I know how this works. You know, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to see them again. I'm, I, you know, I might get deported. So let me just say bye to them and, and whatever. So they, Daniel's dad went, went upstairs to the apartment and um, uh, he knocked on the door. Daniel's brother answered the door. Daniel was asleep on the couch and the ICE officers just kind of let themselves in. And all of a sudden um, there's two ICE officers inside of Daniel's apartment. And the brother was kind of making a stink of like, you're taking my dad, what's happening. And so Daniel woke up from his couch um, to two ICE officers all of a sudden in your living room. And then they just told him, get up. And he got up and he said, Are, were you born here? And he says, I have DACA. And then they just cuffed him. And then they took him. And wow. can you imagine just like no, waking up like no. 30 seconds before you're like in dreamland thinking about no. whatever. And all of a sudden you're being cuffed by federal officers. It's um, It's a trip. That's crazy because especially if he had DACA and then for them to just take him like that, I mean, I didn't know that part of the story. I mean, I remember now the 2017 Daniel case when you're going through that and you and I had been discussing it and in the news and everything, but I didn't know that's how he got on ICE's radar. And was that a, did you guys do a motion to suppress in that case? Was there a suppress? Mm-hmm. Oh, we didn't do a motion to suppress because the um, the alienage was already established mm-hmm. by yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what ended up um, after he was given the bond? And for people that don't know, I kind of want to um, explain the immigration process to them when people are picked up. So. Um, First of all, it's not a, it's considered, even though there's people arresting you and there's bonds and all this, it's not a um, criminal proceeding. It's an administrative um, civil proceeding under federal law and you're not entitled to an attorney. So um, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about was your experience with that and um, people not being entitled to an attorney and what kind of things you have seen with that and can anybody be deported even a child (laughs) if they don't have an attorney yeah i mean um so you're right it's it's a civil proceeding and and the constitution only requires for you to be to be entitled to a an attorney uh, free of cost or otherwise if you're if you're in criminal proceedings in in immigration process you're not you have the right to an attorney, you can have one, but you have to pay for one yourself. You don't get a, a court appointed attorney or anything like that. And um, the government's position has been that it doesn't matter how old you are, you could be two or 92. And if you don't have money for an attorney, you're not getting one. And so um, there's a lot because of that lack of access to counsel. There's, you know, a lot of due process violations, a lot of good cases that fall through the cracks, a lot of uh, a lot of people who don't know what their rights are and don't exercise them and are 
essentially funneled through this this kind of deportation machine and they just get mauled by it. So um, Daniel was looking at that. And, you know, the other thing with Daniel, Daniel had just moved to the state of Washington. Oh, God. He, he, in, he had lived in California mm. um, with his mom, his sister, and his son. And he moved up to Washington because his brother was living up here. And Daniel wanted a higher wage paying job because they pay higher wages here in Washington than in California. So he had just gotten here and he told me straight up, like, hey, I don't have any money. Like, we don't have any money to hire a lawyer. And he was being very, you know, he, he was being straight up with me. And, and you know, I'm not, I don't work at a, at a nonprofit. I, you know, we're for profit attorneys and, and we're private attorneys and, and we charge. And so, but I just felt so, I had such a like righteous indignation about Daniel's case that I was like, don't worry. Like we will, I was like, I'm not going to abandon you here because of that. Um, um, and next thing you know, we have like a team of lawyers together. So then what ended up, um, were you able to assert any sort of, so for people that don't know, when you're in deportation proceedings, you can um, assert like a defense if you qualify certain defenses um, to getting deported and say, hey, I qualify for this or that, so you can't deport me. So what were you guys asking for? What was your stance? Just that he wasn't a gang member, so keep the DACA and this case should be dismissed? Or were you asking for 42B? What was the what was the relief you were asking for? Yeah, so Daniel had two, two cases going on at the same time, one of them in immigration court and the other one in federal court. Um, in federal district court and the district court case was that the government unlawfully terminated his DACA status because um, of this false allegation of being a gang member and there was a lot of litigation and after some back and forth the judge ordered to reinstate his DACA mm. um, but uh, to reinstate his DACA uh, and without um, and to not, not use the the whole fake gang member thing anymore as a basis to terminate and so what happened is that they reinstated his DACA and then they proceeded to terminate it, but they terminated it on like the fact that uh, he had some prior uh, traffic violations that he didn't disclose in his DACA application before. But even though the DACA application ex expressly excludes traffic violations um, as um, that, that's something you have to mention. Um, he had, you know, in California, and, and I can really relate to this because I lived in California for a little while, um, people who were don't have lawful status, any kind of lawful status, for a very, very long time were unable to get driver's licenses. The state would not allow uh, driver's licenses to, to anybody that without status. And so um, Daniel had a lot of driving without a license tickets. Um, and he, he was on a payment plan to pay those back, but the Department of Homeland Security uh, ultimately consider that a negative discretionary factor, a negative factor against him, e essentially saying, we're going to ding you for being poor. And so they ended up denying his and terminating his DACA status based on that, which is very clearly pretextual. Um, and it's true, right? Like he did have these, he was on a payment plan for these tickets and he did have um, uh, some, um, traffic infractions that he didn't mention that he didn't think he had to mention according to the instructions of the application. But uh, USCIS, the, the branch of the Department of Homeland Security that runs this program, um, took away his status. And we went back, running back to court. We went running back to court and, and said, look, this is pretextual um, and this can't happen. And ultimately the district court judge said, like, listen, 
I can only overturn an agency decision if their reasoning is a lie, right? Like if this didn't happen, this did happen. He did have these things going on. Now it may be protectual or not, but as a district court judge, I don't have the authority to overturn an agency decision like that. That's what the agencies are for. And so we and he wanted so badly to rule in our favor, but he ultimately said he couldn't out of a jurisdictional issue. So now the case is up at the Ninth Circuit, his federal case, it's up in the Ninth Circuit, and that's pending. Um, in his deportation case, we essentially were arguing two things. Um, one of the things that we were arguing is um, we were saying that if he were to be deported back to his country, which is Mexico, um, that he would um, be harmed. And, and, and the theory of our case was that when the Department of Homeland Security accused him of being a gang member and once we sued, they doubled down on this and they publicly said that Daniel was a, a gang member and associated with drug trafficking, which he's not. But mm -hmm. they, they said it publicly, nationally. They went on the news and said it. They made press release statements on it. And they made it widely known that this is their position. And so the so, government is creating the harm. The government's putting him at risk if he's the harm. Exactly. And, and so we said, hey, you know how this Daniel's like it, it's an of course called an asylum case, right? And and we said, you know how Daniel's asylum case goes away if you guys admit that you were wrong and apologize and make it publicly known. Hey, they're <laughs> not going to do that. This goes away completely if it just goes away, and they mm -hmm. And so. Um, and so there, that, that was a theory of that case. And, and we also, there's a, there's a provision in the immigration law that says that someone who, um, essentially, if they meet four factors, if you have been in the United States for a minimum of 10 years, which Daniel has, um, if you have certain family members who are U.S. You are US citizens, um, including children, which Daniel has, um, if you're a person of good moral character, which we believe Daniel is, especially after we disavowed that he was a gang member, um, and we got expert witnesses and all that to prove that Daniel's tattoos are not gang tattoos. And lastly, what we had to show is is that um, if Daniel was to be deported, that Daniel's son would suffer um, a certain amount of hardship. It's called the exceptional, uh, exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. And effectively, what the law says is that we have to show a hardship that is substantially different than what happened to like a quote unquote normal family if their if their parent got deported and um, ultimately the immigration judge denied our case both for asylum and for um, this the cancellation of removal um, of being here 10 years and so on and we took it to the board of immigration appeals and they also denied and now we are in the ninth circuit also with that case um, and what judge was that for um his deport case which ij uh we were in the seattle immigration court and we were before oh, okay yeah, because he was out of custody. That's right. So he was in the Seattle court. Okay. Um, how old was Daniel? So you're still litigating this, and you're so both cases with him are in the Ninth Circuit right now. That's right. So this has now been going on for um, four years. I mean, yeah, this litigation outlived the Trump administration. Yeah, and how old was Daniel? Do you remember when he came to the United States? How old he was? Yeah, he was seven. And um, what is his actual criminal history? Is it just driving without privileges? Yeah, I mean, he, he has some driving without privileges. He has um, like some traffic infractions. So, so nothing major. Uh, you know, the, 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 the worst thing that he has 
on his criminal record is a misdemeanor driving without a license. Okay. So the, that's one thing I just want to explain to people is that what we're seeing is people, you know, we need to, you know, deport these undocumented people that do these bad crimes. But right now we're having the government go on for four years against somebody who came here when they were seven, has U.S. citizen children, and their worst thing is a driving without privileges, and they didn't like his tattoo. <laughs> I don't see how this is helping um, <laughs> our society. I mean, at this point, do you think the Biden administration is going to back down? Are they going to stipulate to anything? What kind of changes have you seen with this administration, positive or negative? Are they doing the status quo? What are they going to do with Daniel's case? Because they can stipulate, as we know. Have you talked to them about this? Sorry, that's like yeah. 10 questions, but. <laughs> no, it's okay. So the case is now at the Ninth Circuit, and um, the, um, uh, the, so we filed our, our opening brief for his removal case, and um, the, the the Office of Immigration Litigation Oil, which is the 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 branch of of the civil division of the Department of Justice that handles these matters, um, the oil attorney uh, recently um, suggested that we take this case to mediation, um, and uh, we we might be able to figure something out. Now that's a good step forward because that means that they're not kind of reactionarily trying to oppose uh whatever potential relief um and so that's developing um they have not answered they 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 have not submitted their their answering brief and i and i don't know why that is i don't know if it's you know they're they're really bogged down or if, if this is something they a position they no longer want to defend but what i do know is is that we not um we the the oil attorney the federal prosecutor here um already reached out to the court mediator and the court mediator has now placed the case in the mediation docket for the ninth circuit. And, and now there we are. And this happened like last week. So, so, we're so it is going to be mediated a hundred percent. You're going to mediate it. I mean, I don't know if it's going to resolve a mediation, but it is for sure going to get mediated. Yep. It's in the mediation docket. Now it just happened last week. And um, I mean, who knows what the results of that are going to be. Um, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling hopeful, but I'm also feeling like, you know, for what they've put this guy through, he needs, it better be good. <laughs> it better be real good. Right. I mean, if they, I would think that unless they grant the 42B or stipulate to that, it, just giving him his DACA back is, might not be enough. I mean, something like a 42B. So people know that a 42B would give him um, residency and, DACA is not a form of um, residency. It's not a pathway to citizenship. So I, so is that what you're kind of looking at? Or I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know how litigation goes, right? Yes. Like we have a lot of goals and we have to see how things pan out. So we're, we're, we're hope we're, um, you know, Daniel, Daniel and I became close friends, you know, um, and he, in a lot of ways, he made my career, um, and in his case was really a case that really launched my career into into a um, a more nationally known one. Um, and I I met Daniel in one of the roughest times of his life, if not the roughest time of his life. Right, being in immigration detention, being separated from his family, facing possible deportation like that's a lot. 
Mm-hmm. So um, we, we've become very close and uh, I'm, you know, just like all my clients, I'm looking out for them, but Daniel has a very special place in my heart. Yeah, I, I believe that. Um, I hope that this turns out. I'm, I mean, it's just a nightmare what he's been through and such a waste of government resources. I mean, for somebody with DWPs, that's crazy. For your litigation, I paying for detention cost. I mean, all of the stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, and they put a lot of attorneys on this case too. I know that. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't look for logic anymore. (laughs) Right. If it makes sense, then that's probably not what they're gonna do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, kind of backtracking a little bit, you're, I remember when we met in law school and I had no idea about immigration. Um, my undergrad was in, it was in philosophy. And then I had come to law school and we had in law school, we just had so many, um, people in are in the multiple classes that were either at one point undocumented that were citizens. Now we had some people that were residents um, in law school that became citizens. And then I remember when you had shared with me that you were undocumented and I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is a problem. How are you going to take the bar and freaking out? Um, So I just want to go through kind of your history and when, um, were you brought to the United States? Yeah, I came to the United States when I was, I was under two years old. I was already over a year old. It was like between when I was one or two, so like one and a half. And you went to school in California? That's where you grew Cali. up? Yep, Cali, baby. I, I consider myself a Californian through and through. NorCal, um, right? NorCal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though, you know, I do I do mess with SoCal. So I know <laughs> but I, I like I, I got I, I got LA I got a uh, love for LA and San Diego and all that but um, yeah I grew up in I grew up in San Francisco and uh, you know San Francisco has this whole vibe um, you could you, you'll know someone's from the, the the Bay Area one because they'll tell you <laughs> just to be like hey, oh I'm yeah <laughs> but, um, you know there's a whole vibe there's a whole language kind of thing there it has its own slang and has its own culture and um and so I grew up in the in the Bay, um, and I uh, I went to school there. I went to high school there. Um, yeah, I I went, I did my undergrad there. So I I um I'm a Bay Area for sure. And when did you find out um, that you were undocumented? You know, I, I I get that question a lot, and 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 after thinking about it for a while, like it it's not it's not something you necessarily find out at one time. It's something that you continue to find out what that means throughout your life. Like I, I knew pretty early on that I wasn't born here. And, 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 and I knew that that has certain consequences. Um, you know, we, I lived in a place where there was a lot of um, immigration rates and sometimes we wouldn't go to school because of that. Um, I remember uh, sometimes we couldn't go home after school because there was a raid uh, that happened during the day while we were in school and, the, and they were still there. And so all we knew that was was that we couldn't go there and we'd have to just like go chill at the park or the library or wherever just to wait till it settled down. And this is this is before cell phones too, right? So we had to like use pay phones and like try to figure out what's up. Um, or, or we would hear through our, na- like our neighbor 
would come to the school to pick up their kids and say like, Hey, you, you know, we're, we ain't going over there. And like, they'll just take us somewhere. And so it was, it was kind of a community effort, but um, someone to live here without status, you are continuously uh, figuring out what that means. And when I was young, it meant, it meant that we were scared of the police um, because to us, anybody with a badge was potentially an immigration officer or it could lead down that path. So um, that's what that meant first. And, and then it also meant when I was, when I was in eighth grade, we were studying like old Europe, um, like I forget what century of Europe, a real old Europe, like castles and kings and all that. And, and, our, and our school was subsidizing a trip to Europe and we had to sell chocolate in order to come up with the other, the other part. And I see candy chocolate too. We're going to be brand specific, but I had, and I I hustled that chocolate and I and I sold like I sold a lot of chocolate and and I made enough to make the trip and eventually I told my parents like yo like I got enough and I want to go and and they told me that I can't go and they and at the time they they really the only the only um, the way that they put it together was like you can't go because you weren't born here and that was another time that I realized what it meant to be undocumented. And then it happened again when I was trying to get a driver's license when I was 15 and, you know, you take driver's ed and everybody, you know, is taking their paperwork out to the department of motor vehicles at DMV. And I told my mom, I was like, it was like the only class I paid attention to. I'm not going to lie. And that's how I was like, I want to get my driver's license. Mm -hmm. And I went over and she was like, you can't get a driver's license because you weren't born here. And, and, and it's series like that, right, of, of what you figure out what you can and can't do and what it means kind of throughout your life uh, and, how, and, how, and how it shapes your life. And you, so it, it feels like it's a constant, um, a constant journey of finding out, like, what that means. And, and, and to your point, like, when I was a full-ass adult, like, in law school, is when I found out that I possibly couldn't take the bar because I wasn't born here. And, and so these moments come and go a lot of what it means. And, and that disappointment becomes a familiar, a familiar type of disappointment of not being, having restrictions, limitations, uh, limited aspirations and roadblocks because you weren't born here. Yeah. And even with law school, I remember when you told me that you were undocumented and because I now knew what that meant because I was in law school, because I was just, I guess, a lay person, I wouldn't really know what that meant, what, what any of that would mean or what consequences that would mean. But I knew I'm like, okay, so how are you paying for this? Because you can't get financial aid. Like, how are you going to take the bar? <laughs> because we're in law school and you're going to have to put down, you know, your status. Um, I don't, and I remember thinking all those things. So that was, um, that was really, I think what started my passion and um, ended up doing immigration clinic. What was your plan going to be if you couldn't take the bar? I mean, did you go into law school thinking that I for sure were going to take the bar? Or was that not even a question that entered your mind um, until you were more like a one or two L? When did you realize that? Yeah, I, I really messed up and I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> 
I just like it didn't even cross my mind that it was gonna be a problem. Uh huh. Like low key, I didn't even really know that there was like, you know, I I, I don't come from a gen- like none of my family went to college. Uh huh. So like, I'm kind of trying to fi- I'm figuring this out as I'm I'm kind of maneuvering on this and. I did. I don't even think I really knew that there was like there was a bar to take after. I was like, you graduate, you become a lawyer, right? Like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I found out my one L year, my first year of law school, where um, I so I couldn't I couldn't qual- I didn't qualify and couldn't qualify for financial aid, so no loans or anything. So it was a, it was a hustle to try to try to pay for all of that out of pocket. Um, and one of the reasons I went to the University of Idaho was because of money. Um, it was it was less expensive to pay out of state tuition in Idaho than it was to pay in state tuition in Cali, and Idaho was the one who uh, um, more was more willing to play ball with me about how to maneuver some of the money situation, and so um, so I was so I was there and I I had run out of money um, during the Thanksgiving times to be able to go back home, and um, so I stayed in I stayed in Idaho. And it, when I was there, I um, I saw an I read an article in the on the LA, on the Los Angeles Times on the LA Times about a UCLA law student who had graduated law school but couldn't be admitted to the bar because he wasn't born here, and 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 it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, oh yeah, like why wouldn't there be like a licensing exam and, and why, and, and why didn't I think that that was going to be a roadblock? And I, you know, again, pay, paying for school was a hustle. I, um, I, again, I come from the Bay, right. So like I'm up in like middle of nowhere, rural Idaho. Um, and, and it, you know, I, it, it just, it was the, the pressure was a lot like the law school pressures a lot, the financial pressures a lot, um, away from my community, away from my family. And I was like, for what? Like to, to to graduate here and go back working blue like just you know labor jobs and, and no disrespect to labor jobs but I can just do that now like there's no need to to go through all of this if I'm just gonna go back and do the same thing and so um so I had called my mom I was on my way um it was like super snowing in Idaho and, for, and by the way I thought I was gonna really dig the snow because I come from Cali and I was like there's no snow there um where I was living so I was like yo the snow's here I'm gonna like make snow angels and like snow I quickly got over it I didn't realize how wet snow was and how much of a pain it is to drive in so it was snowing and I was going down to a coffee shop called Sisters in yes <laughs> to go study fucking contract law and whatever and realizing that I, I'm not going to get to practice law. And so I called my mom when I parked and I was like, you know what? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to pack my stuff and I'm leaving. So I called her and I let her know like, Hey, I, cause I, you know, I told her I wasn't going to be there for Thanksgiving. And I called her, I was like, I think I could still make it. And I told her what happened and she was not having it. She yelled at me. Like, wow. <laughs> uh, and she's like, no, and she's like, you are, she's like, I she's like, you are not coming back here. And, and ultimately said, she's like, we don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, and you might not be able to take the bar, but they're like, no, she, I remember she very specifically said, like, they can't unteach you what they teach you there. And, and, you know, people like us don't make it into places like that. And so just learn everything that you have to learn there and get all the experiences you have to get there. And then we'll figure the rest of it out later. But 
you're not coming back. And in no uncertain terms, she let me know there's going to be an ass kicking waiting for me. If, I quit. <laughs> if so you quit. I, yeah. And, and I, um, and I like was crying in my car and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, just, just, you know, sobbing. And, and I, and I was like really upset because I thought she was going to be more supportive about me just leaving. And ultimately if I, I stuck around my first year and I, and I continued doing it. And, and as far as I was concerned, I had three years to be a lawyer, the three years in law school. Those were my three years to re- three years to really experience what being a lawyer was like. So I, um, I took advantage of every internship of every clinic, anybody who would meet with me, um, uh, you know, I will do free work and whatever it took for me to, to put these skills to use now, because I, as far as I was concerned, I didn't have enough time. And so um, I really invested a lot in, in trying to get the skill set down. All the while, this is before DACA too, right? This is 2010, 2011. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the while, like, I'm, I'm just making sure that, like, the feds don't catch me. <laughs> like, I'm in, right. I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere, Idaho, and, and, you know, Idaho is not a very liberal state. And so, um, and I, they don't necessarily have a lot of immigrant-friendly policies. And, mm-hmm. and like, I had to be careful with that. But, um, so yeah, and, and it was my, my last year of law school. I was going, in, I was, I just finished my second year, law school three years, and I just finished my second year. And I was in the summer, getting towards the end of the summer, about to start my third year in law school. And I was in Cali, I was in California, and I was at my mom's house. And all of a sudden, um, you know, we we hear rumblings that President Obama had caved, that the years of activism and activism and activism and pushing them to do a moratorium on deportations for young people so that they can continue their activism um, you know, it was an election year. And at that point he had been dubbed the deporter in chief because he was on pace and he did accomplish to deport more people than any other president in the history of the United States. And that includes president Trump. Um, did he really deport more people than Trump? I didn't know that. Yep. yep. He is deported. Oh my God. I knew a oh, wow. I, yeah. during, during the first four years of president Obama's tenure, he deported for example, more people than Bush's eight years. Um, and the, the, during the first year, first four years of Obama's administration, he deported more people than Trump's four years. So um, it, it, so he was in a lot of political pressure because he made a lot of promises. And so going into his second year in 2012, uh, in um, July 2012, he stepped out to the Rose Garden and announced DACA. Uh, that and, and it's it, this is important that is said and recognized that DACA was not a gift from Obama. It was a political concession that he made after constant and dogged activism that pressed him in sitting down at his campaign office in Chicago, pressing the Democrats and the Democrats there pressing him on this election year to make this happen. And and so Obama begrudgingly put DACA on the table um, after he said he didn't want to do it. So it was a humongous, humongous win for the immigrants' rights community. But for me personally, I was sitting at my mom's kitchen table <laughs> that morning. It was 10 a.m. in the morning. And um, I'm like on my laptop, like watching this. And he announces DACA. 
And uh, it happened right before I was going to go into my third and final year of law school. And at first I was like, the government wants me to do what? They want me to give them all my information and then, and not just my information, but my family's information. Mm, yeah. And then they're, and I'm just supposed to trust that they're just like, not going to use it against me later. Like, yeah, like I wasn't born yesterday. And so uh, I, <laughs> you're like, I, something's fishy here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. I, was like, I am not doing that. And so I waited, I waited and um, I heard people, um, I, I, you know, I had kept in touch with a lot of the people who were, you know, undocumented and, 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 and all of a sudden we start hearing that this program is actually working out. Like they got the work permits and they got their social security numbers and the, the basic building blocks of life, right. Of, of being right. able to participate meaningfully in our community. And so, um, and so I was like, all right, all right I'm going to do it then. So I, I got all my paperwork ready. I put it all together myself and, and then I filed it. Did you do it completely yourself or did anybody help you? No, I did it myself. I did it myself. Okay. I was just putting those lawyer skills to use. Yeah. I didn't know if uh, like, was professor Sherman still there? I don't know. I was just curious. Still there. Yeah. No, okay. but I, I did it myself. I did it myself and, um, and I filed it and, um, you know, I had to go get my, my fingerprints done and that was really scary. Um, cause I'm going to like the DHS office and you know, you don't right. know what, what's going to happen. And, and uh, so I go and get my fingerprints done and, and get my photograph taken by the Department of Homeland Security. And then, um, and then I wait and, I, and then I get my approval notice in the mail and I get my work permit and I get my social security number and, and then it's a wrap, right? Like that. Well, that's... kind of. Because... Right, right, right. I guess, yeah. Like at least for that, for that, <laughs> right? I was like, all right, well, my hands have been somewhat unhandcuffed. Right. And so, um, but it's what has allowed me to uh, advocate for my clients, to make a living, to pass the bar, to, to participate in more meaningfully in our community. But then there were still issues with taking the bar because how long did it take you to actually take the bar? Because Idaho wasn't wanting to allow you to take the bar, period, even with your DACA. So I forgot how long that was that you, you graduated in 2013. And then when did you actually, when were you actually able to sit for the bar? Yeah, that was a, that was another mission that I didn't anticipate. Like right before, when I was in my third year, when I was going through my third year, then I realized that taking, actually taking the bar, whether or not I had DACA was going to be problematic. And at that time, uh, of what was known, there was about three other undocumented law students or law graduates at the time. So in I was like, U of I or in the whole nation? In the whole nation. Okay. And we gravitated and found each other um, through different kind of underground networks, to be honest. And um, we we found each other and we were kind of, we were brainstorming and commiserating about this plight and um, ultimately, I talked to, I first talked to the ACLU of Idaho to see if they were interested in, in helping with this. And they were a bit bogged down at the time. And they, you know, they, it, you know, again, this is, this is back before like Dreamers and DACA and all that stuff was hot. Like, 
this is back when you, you ask somebody like, Hey, I'm a dreamer. They're going to be like, what's that? Right. Like I still feel people are like that, but <laughs> yeah, low key. Um, it's so, uh, then I talked to Maldef and they were going to help me out with it. Um, and, and originally the Idaho said, you know, it's not going to be a problem. So then we started going through the process and, and then, and then they were like, psych, it is going to be a problem actually. It's so, uh, it, Anyway, it became a journey. Ultimately, California affirmatively allowed for individuals to sit for the bar, regardless of immigration status. They don't care. They're like, if you graduated from a law school and you take our bar exam and you pass the bar exam, you're going to be admitted. We don't care about your immigration status. We're just not going to ask about you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really fair. And so I, I ended up taking the bar in California, which is the, one of the hardest bars in the nation. And so I was a little, <laughs> I was a little tripping on that where I'm like, no, I don't want to take the California bar. But um, uh, but yeah, then I ended up taking the California bar and they were they they admitted me and it was great. And then how many how many years after you graduated law school were you able to take the bar? Was it like two years, three years? It had to be like two, three, four years after. Uh, I don't remember because I had to I had to sit for the Idaho bar and then they just decided not to use my score. And so, oh my God, I didn't know you actually sat and took the test. Taking the bar multiple times is a trip. I don't know if for any multiple. Oh my God. Like, like, no. How do I not remember that? So, you actually took the Idaho bar and then they're like, yeah, you'll be able to take it here. You took it and then they're like, like, it doesn't matter that you took it or passed it or whatever. We're not going to give it to you essentially i mean like at first wow. they're like oh it shouldn't be a wow. problem because of, <laughs> because of daca and then they're like actually they're like no <laughs> the way that the rate their i don't know like their laws is is um written it makes it so that i can't be admitted though which literally makes no sense i mean if somebody there's so many people that anyways I could go off on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's um, a lot of people who we graduated law school with are like, you're a lawyer? Yeah. <laughs> right? I, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. <laughs> but now I did. But now I did. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's what was going through my mind. Or the people that have taken it that are U.S. citizens and like have failed it, you know, 10 times or whatever. Um. Why? So people that are hearing this, like DACA, I mean, when you were growing up and you were undocumented and we're talking about law school and we're talking about all these things, why didn't you just at any of those points, you know, you were in eighth grade and you couldn't go on the trip because you couldn't travel because you didn't have a passport because you couldn't get one because you weren't a citizen and in law school and going through undergrad. And why didn't you just... Um, at any of those points before DACA came out, why didn't you just get status? Why didn't you just fill out some immigration forms and get status? Yeah, I think that, that's the biggest questions I get with with people who are, you know, I think approaching this for the first time or, or trying to wrap their heads around, like, can't you just like get papers, go to the, go, go to the paper store and buy some or whatever, whatever you do, right? right? Like, <laughs> can you just go to the citizenship store and just like do your thing um you know the the immigration and citizenship laws here are 
are notoriously and famously complicated. Um, every court in the nation has recognized that, including the Supreme Court a few times. Um, and, and effectively, what, what it comes down to is, is that there are, there are very limited ways in which someone can actually obtain some sort of legal status in the United States. Um, uh, there's most of the immigration system, you have to be petitioned for. Someone has to petition for you uh, in order for you to stay here. Uh, but that petition process is littered with landmines and traps and pitfalls and things like that, that make it so that um, you, you are disqualified. Uh, so for example, suppose that me as a lawyer now um, want to work at some fancy schmancy law office and they want to petition for me as like an employer petition. The fact that I've already lived in the United States without status is a pitfall. Um, so you wouldn't fact, qualify. So I wouldn't qualify. Um, the fact that when I was younger, I worked with before I had a work permit also disqualifies me. Uh, you know, but those kind of little things. And so, um, and, and sometimes they're like little petty things like that, but it, it makes it very, very difficult. And then there's no way for someone to just say, I want to pledge allegiance to this country and therefore allow me to stay here. Or I've been here for some amount of time. Let me just pay for my paperwork to allow me to stay here. And, and I get, I get the, 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 the sentiment of like, why can't you just apply for papers and become a citizen? Like, you're right. Like, why can't I do that? That's that's. I've, I've been asking myself that also. <laughs> like, why can't I do that? You're right. I like. I share your frustration. Like, I should be able to, but I can't. Um, and and um, the U the U S is unlike many countries in that way, where places like um, uh, a lot of places in Europe, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, um, some places in Asia, some places in the Middle East where you could go and you if effectively, if you, there's some, in some places where if you prove yourself, right, if you don't get into trouble, you, uh, um, you, you play some sort of allegiance to the country that you're, you know, you're one, you're one of them kind of thing and, and, you know, pay your taxes and all that, then they'll welcome you in. Um, France, for, for example, granted French citizenship to all of those individuals who were working as essential workers during the pandemic, like things like that, you know? Um, but the U.S. doesn't do that, and that they're very, they're very protective. I guess the word would be um, reserved as to who is allowed legal status. And in part, I mean, if we're just going to call a spade a spade, is that the U.S. labor and economic system revolves around having undocumented workers, and the. The, um, but the I never under I never understand that though because from my experience, if we're looking at, um, so I used to do deportation defense again for um, people that don't know that, and a lot of my clients who were undocumented and um, they did do stuff like more, I mean, a lot of agriculture or landscape or um, at the dairies or something like that, but they all got paid. um, They got paid way above minimum wage. I mean, some of my clients were getting, especially if they have like a, a more of a trade skill or they're, 
you know, like for a laborer, like if they're a really good tiler or something like that, they're going to get, you know, $30 more. I mean, I have clients, I had clients that were undocumented that were millionaires and own their own construction companies. So I don't see how we depend on them because whether they're documented or undocumented, it's not like they're getting paid, you know, $3 an hour or something. I mean, from all of the clients I have, they're all getting paid over minimum wage. So that's what I'm not understanding is why we're dependent on these people being undocumented. So I guess I'm I'm not understanding that point. Yeah. I think you definitely then reached into a pool that's the exception rather than the rule. Uh, If you go places down to Los Los Angeles, New York, Boston, um, San Francisco for sure, San Diego, these big immigrant hubs, you know, there's a lot of uh, individuals who are working below minimum wage Mm. um, in order to make it house cleaners, dish dish cleaners at restaurants, lots of restaurant workers, cooks, um, janitorial staff, farm workers, you go out on the farm workers and, you know, farm agricultural work is one of the biggest um, uh, aggravators of this because they, they will quote unquote compensate the worker by providing like, they'll say, okay, you know, suppose that someone's going to get paid $30,000 a year, whatever. They'll say, okay, we're, you're actually going to get paid $15,000 a year, but we're going to provide you a place to live. So you don't have to pay rent. And they're like, all right, bet. And so they move to this like middle of nowhere farmlands to go work at these agricultural fields. And then you look at the living, living conditions and, and it's horrendous, it's squalor. And then they'll get told, you know, if you don't, you know, if you, you know, if you complain against us or whatever, like, you know, we'll we'll call immigration on you and your family. Um, meatpacking plants, meatpacking plants is the ones where they're working 12, 13, 14, 15 hour days, no overtime in real bad conditions that, you know, this, some sometimes there's some meatpacking workers that get dismembered because of the grinding of the meat and things like that. And and uh, they don't get insurance. They, go, they maybe go to the hospital and, and they'll take care of that. They don't expect to go back to work and work these wages. And so it's, all, it's a lot, you know, if we're looking at the system as a whole, the, the, the U.S. economic and labor system right now depends on the exploitation of undocumented workers. And that is a objective truth. I didn't realize how many people were getting paid below minimum wage because my experience in Idaho is um, so much different. I mean, I guess I feel grateful that my a lot of my clients then didn't have to experience that because so many of my clients would make, um, I think if they got paid 10, if I ever saw that, that was like a low wage. Like most of my clients I feel made $15 or more an hour in Idaho um, because they all had to have, you know, fake green cards and give the employer the fake green card. The The employer knows that they're undocumented, but they just say, oh, well, you showed me this green card. So I'm sure, you know, you're a resident or whatever. And so since they're reporting their wages and paying them and paying taxes into the system, they had to pay them at least minimum wage. So you're saying there's this whole other subset where they're not even having a fake green card that they're just getting paid um, below minimum wage in cash or how are they getting even paid? Yeah. I mean, there's different ways that the, that the, that, the informal economies of migrant work gets paid. Sometimes it's in cash. Sometimes you get check and they go to check cashing places. Um, so, so it's it's in different ways. Um, 
that they end up getting paid. Um, or something. How are the employers? Cause I'm, I have my second business now that I've owned and I've had employees and I have to, you know, pay taxes and turn their and turn their, um, when I'm claiming that on my business income that I paid wages and everything and taking those taxes out. So what are, how are they not being audited? I mean, if they're claiming I paid, you know, $30,000 in wages, but then they're not doing a a 1099 or W2 or something like that. um, That just, do you know how they get around that? Farm workers, farm owners who own farm and have farm worker, um, Employees are not getting audited. Meatpacking plants are not getting audited. Dish, restaurants are not getting audited, and and I and I think and part of that is for a reason. So Definitely. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule, right? But like, uh, so right now at the firm I work at, uh, or that I am a partner in. Excuse me. I was gonna say, are you an owner? Yeah, <laughs> dusted myself off here a little. Um, <laughs> I, we we uh, we work with labor unions, mm-hmm. and undocumented work uh, you know the the labor unions are protect all workers no matter of immigration status and as long as they're a part of the union and and one of the things that we worked out for is for potential abuses and exploitations of undocumented workers and, and sometimes it comes in with cutting of the wages they they on paper it looks like they're paying them part-time but they're you know they're working full-time and they'll tell they'll tell them like hey you know we know you don't have status but don't worry, we'll, we'll, we won't uh, check your paperwork, but you know, it's gonna cost you. Well, we're only gonna pay you 25, 30, 30 hours and you're gonna work 40, 45 hours. Mm-hmm. We're, gonna, we're gonna pay you full time, but you're really gonna work that plus overtime. We're not gonna be working. Because that's, that's the, the, pre, the quid pro quo on us hiring you when we're not supposed to. And so, um, it, it, you know, you get these kind of exploitive workforce and some of them it's coerced, right? Like, Hey, you got to work here. Yeah. We'll pay you something. So you're not starving, but you know, um, you know, when you pay cash, you can also report wherever. So yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Yeah. I didn't realize that just because I had such a different experience with my, um, with my clients in Idaho. And so when people would be like, they're taking our jobs and stuff, I'm like, how are they taking your jobs there? You could go get a job there too and make double minimum wage. Yeah, <laughs> I'm confused. So I think I do remember kind of that now. Um, there's somebody and I don't want to say the person's name because I haven't got their permission, but we went to law school with that person and they became a citizen in law school. They were a resident, but they had I think came when they were like 20 or something asylum. And for, I remember, and they were in the Bay area. And I remember when he was telling me that it was horrible, the time that he was undocumented for a while. And I don't know if that was for a year or six months or two years or whatever. And him being a dishwasher. So that is coming back to me now. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us because I didn't realize how much of that goes on that it, it really is. Um, it, now, do you think these people would qualify for U visas if they're being taken advantage of like that? Sometimes what are called T visas. T visas, okay. Yeah, victims of trafficking, labor trafficking. Um, in regards to the Biden administration, what changes have you seen positive or negative or status quo from the Trump administration? Are they upholding these the same policies? Are they differentiating? What's going on with the current administration and some positives or negatives that you've seen? One of the things that I've seen is um, 
I mean, the the Biden administration is, I think, taking a, a big playbook um, from um, the the Obama administration, which is they're they're reprioritizing um, who is and is not a priority uh, for removal, um, and essentially directing the immigration agencies as to how to focus the resources. And what this is doing effectively is, is that this is um, making it so that it's a better well-oiled deportation machine. And that's what happened under President Obama because under President Trump, everyone was a priority. And it didn't matter whether someone was here for 30 years and had a business and had no criminal history or whether someone did have criminal history and was a recent arrival, right? Like kind of polar opposites of circumstances. That didn't matter. They all get placed in the same deportation machine. But that then places a grinding halt on the deeper on the, the court system because someone who has a better chance of potentially fighting their case because they have deep ties to the United States or whatever, um, they will make it so that they um, um, they might actually fight their case, and that takes time and resources to go through court hearings and things like that. Right. But someone who maybe doesn't have any family with status or doesn't uh, you know have some minor misdemeanor. Uh, convictions, which may otherwise disqualify them from relief, uh, from immigration relief or deportation relief and might get deported, they're the ones who get put into the grinder. And so um, they're the ones who uh, are the most vulnerable of the population and may not um, may not be able to um, fight their case. So they might be in like what are called legal deserts where they don't have access to counsel. And so um, the the while on paper, it seems like a good thing, like certain people are being deprioritized in practice, it makes it so that a lot more people are gonna get deported. Um, also, um, ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the, the Immigration Police, they're supposed to prioritize who actually uh, gets picked up and or like, you know, who are they gonna be arresting and putting them in detention centers and like that. I haven't really seen that really pan out. Um, in terms of them exercising their discretion in the enforcement priority. You mean with like, oh, like, because you can get, so people know, you can get a, if you're picked up by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, you can get um, ICE themselves in their discretion, you know, can issue you a bond, can OR you, um, release on a recognizance, um, then issue an NTA for a court date. Um, or if they don't give you a bond, you can ask from the immigration judge. So you're saying that they're supposed to be giving, ICE is supposed to ha be having more discretion to give bonds and you're not seeing that. Is that what I'm hearing? Um, ICE is supposed to not be picking up people at all if they're uh, not priorities and okay. they seem to be doing that. Um, okay. So yeah. like, let's say I'm just undocumented because I remember under Obama when I was practicing under him, it's like, if I'm just undocumented, I've been here, you know, whatever, five years, 10 years, 20 years, I maybe have a drive without privileges. I mean, I could literally call ICE on that person and ICE isn't going to come pick you up. But under Trump, they would because anybody undocumented would get picked up. So you're saying the priorities are supposed to go back to more Obama and you're not seeing that. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot more in practice of more just everybody's a priority. And for example, I have a client who, uh, or I, you know, was talking to this with one person who um, he has been here for 20 years. He has a, um, he had a deportation order from like 1990, something like that, 1991. Mm -hmm. 
And um, he didn't realize he had it because he didn't speak English at the time. And I guess the process just went so fast when he was detained that he just didn't really not realize what happened. Um, he has been living here since like 95. Um, it has a, a partner who is right now going through a gender transition and is, you know, going through that medication. So, you know, she, she's going through kind of a heavy process and he got picked up and put us in the detention center and they refused to let him out. No criminal history. Another client whose spouse is an essential worker. She's, an, she's a pediatric nurse during COVID and um, he has no criminal convictions and got picked up by ICE too. And so- Why? Why? A pediatric nurse? That what, Did she not have- No, the um, the the spouse of a pediatric nurse. The spouse of a pediatric- Did that person have a prior deport or they're just regular undocumented? Uh, the person uh, had a prior deportation from like 2010 mm-hmm. um, from Customs and Border Patrol at the border. I guess they had him sign some paperwork and mm. they said that they translated it for him. And but it doesn't they seem didn't. like that was the case, right? As we know, and um, they ended up um, giving him a deportation order without him really knowing. And uh, now they're trying to what's called reinstate that deportation order. And, uh, and under the priority memos, they're supposed to not to do that. But in practice, it's, it's hard. It's hard to see it happen. And it's also hard to challenge because it happens so quickly. Right. Like by the time they actually attempt to deport them, like it's hard to try to get your all your bearings out. Yeah, but I remember under Obama, then if you had a prior deport and then sometimes the TAs, which are the. Um, attorneys for the government um, would, you know, almost stipulate to, okay, they could stay here for basically hardship and have a work permit that they renew every year through ICE. I mean, are we seeing that come back at all or is that not coming back? I haven't seen that happen at the detention center in Tacoma. So the TAs are still, do you think, are they still operating more under the Trump administration, the hardlining, or are you seeing, I know one for sure just recently, um, cause I have a client and this person was the father of my client. Um, and I actually wrote a letter for his case, but the government stipulated to, um, his 42B. And so, which I hadn't seen the whole Trump administration cause I stopped doing immigration under Trump. Um, I think a couple of years in under Trump, I did it. Um, and we weren't seeing any more stipulations. So are you not seeing any stipulations to anything in Tacoma? Well, for these particular people who I was just talking about, they have prior removal orders, so they're not going to court. So we're not dealing with the TAs. We're dealing with ICE directly. And, but you're not trying to do like a motion to reopen or? No, it, they're both expedited removal orders. Okay. Okay. So you can't do that. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, and what about, I know under Trump, there was this big, obviously these protests about children being locked in cages and family separation. Um, but was the detention of children occurring under Obama and is it still occurring under the Biden administration? Um, so the separation of children has never happened ever before um, the systematic separation of children and parents at the border like that. Um, the, 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 under Obama, one of his supposed solutions to 
um, immigration was to create um, what's called the family docket. And um, they, and with that came what are called family residential centers. So it was essentially a detention center for entire families. Um, and they were, some of them, I think were in Louisiana, some of them were in Georgia, I forget, the others might've been in York, uh, Pennsylvania. And that, those were in full swing during the Obama um, administration, which the Trump administration continued to utilize and the Biden administration has refused to close down, so. And they could close it down and they could parole these people into the United States while they're waiting deportation, but they're choosing. They could do it today if they wanted to. But they're choosing not to. Yeah, that's right. And what about um, asylum seekers at the border? Um, Is that still being closed down because of COVID or what's the status of that? So, there was um, during the Trump administration, there was this policy that is now known as the remain in Mexico policy that essentially said that asylum seekers who are coming to the border to seek asylum, which is by the way, a legal way of doing things. Yes. Um, they, um, and um, usually what would happen is that someone comes to the border, seeks asylum and either they're detained at the detention center or if they have someone they could stay with here in the United States or they have some sort of family, they will release them into the care um, and responsibility of that family member with the promise um, that you have to go to your court dates and do stuff like that when the time comes uh, at the nearest immigration court that you're gonna be around. And so that was the kind of get down during, I mean, literally just any time before Trump. Once Trump came into power, uh, what they did is is that they weren't permitting asylum seekers to come to the United States. Instead, they said, okay, you have to wait in Mexico. And when there's a court hearing, we will allow you to then come to the United States for the limited purpose of going to your court hearing. And then we're going to bring you back um, and, and things like that. So the majority, if not all of the process for asylum seekers were that they had to remain in Mexico and wait there. However, um, you know, that created a lot of problems because a lot of people didn't have families in, in, in Mexico. It was hard to create anything permanent in Mexico because you might, you have to go in and out of your court dates every, you know, few weeks or whatever. And so the Biden administration then stopped that. And they um, they stopped the remain in Mexico policy and, and allowed the processing of asylum seekers into the U.S. so that they could either be detained or they could be released to their families as they await the decision on their case. And yesterday, um, there was a court ruling out of Texas because I think it was the, the state of Montana and the state of Texas, definitely Texas, sued because Biden terminated that program. And I forget exactly what the challenge was, but essentially they said they wanted to reinstate the program and the court agreed with the state of Texas and they reinstated this, um, the wait in Mexico, remain in Mexico program as of yesterday. Um, so that's kind of what's happening there in the asylum front regarding COVID. There's this thing called uh, title 40 or yeah, title 42 expulsions, which is where the U S can expel people, um, and keep them out of the United States for important national security reasons or health reasons. And, you know, including a pandemic, and so, but it's way over-inclusive. Like it's not really doing much to actually flatten any kind of curve of COVID because 
some of the a lot of the asylum seekers had already been vaccinated or they um, are testing negative for COVID, but they're still being summarily just pushed back into Mexico. Um, I get why they await the decision under the Title 42 exposures provision. So that's still happening during Biden, and Biden has explicitly um, not wanted to disrupt that part of the Trump administration's policy. So you're seeing, it sounds like a lot of stuff is staying the status quo. There's a change in tone. There's a change in tone for sure. Um, there, there isn't a constant attack on some of the policies. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's moving in the right direction, though it's moving very, very slowly. Um, uh, the, the Biden administration, for example, just hired uh, Professor Gutentag, Lucas Gutentag, and I actually had the privilege of talking to Lucas for a long while, um, a few weeks ago before he was picked up by the Biden administration. And he's a professor at... Um, He's a professor at Stanford, and what part of his project, and he had students help on this, is that they tracked, uh, cataloged, and characterized every change that the Trump administration did so that there could be a roadmap to undo it in a future administration. Um, wow. Yeah, that was his project while at Stanford, right, teaching at Stanford Law. I'm so and, glad we have wonderful human beings like this on this planet. <laughs> That's yeah, a, that is a crazy ass task. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There, there ended up being like, I forget how many changes exactly in total, but it ended up being like 1.5 changes per day in the immigration wow. law in the entire wow. 40 years of the administration, like on average 1.5 changes of, of, of law every day. Like week, weekend too, weekend, like 365, four <laughs> years, count. every day, every day. Right? Wow. And, and so they, uh, the, the Biden administration just picked them up to, to be a White House, um, White House aide of immigration. Um, they, they have hired a few people who I know who are uh, prior policymakers for nonprofits and prior um, activists to be, to serve as advisors for DHS. Um, I think Secretary Mayorkas, uh, the now Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, who is the head now of the Department of Homeland Security, is a good start. Um, I think he's a good start. I think he's good for the department. I think he will bring some level of compassion um, to do it, but it's slow moving. Um, what's weird is, is that during when we were fighting Trump on all his on all his policies, you know, we were up against Department of Justice lawyers, White House lawyers, um, and. Um, those lawyers have not gone away. They are career DOJ attorneys, so they're sticking around. But now we're on the same side of things, supposedly. <laughs> so now we're working with the lawyers we were up against and arguing vehemently against uh, in court. Now we're trying to figure out how to work together to try to get some of these policies to make sure they pass legal muster. So it's weird. It's a trip, but um, it's taking forever. And every day that the Biden administration delays in doing something meaningful and bold, um, is more days that people get deported, more days that families get separated. And so I hope he's 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 acts quickly on this. And this is something that was brought up to Secretary Mallorca about how this it's slow moving, yo. Like you need to move quicker on this. And he said he knows, and he says that. <laughs> it's not and we'll see if that's true. But um, I mean, we also have a major, major, major immigration reform bill that's on the table right now. It just passed the sixty votes in the um, passed the sixty votes in the in the Senate. 
that it needed. And it, it now has to go through what's called the budget reconciliation process in order to actually make it happen. The bill that was passed um, only gives money to the agency to be able to update and modernize their immigration system. It, the bill is now going to go through what is called the budget reconciliation process where they essentially add meat to those bones and, and, and add what, what it means to do that. And what's on the table right now in the budget reconciliation process is, is that they, um, it, it, it'll allow for a pathway to citizenship to, um, uh, to DACA recipients or anybody who could have qualified for DACA, uh, anybody with temporary protected status, which is a particular status that the government grants uh, people of certain nationality, like Haiti, for example, um, uh, uh, farm workers, and essential workers. And I'm not really sure how they uh, define essential workers. Do you think this is going to actually go through and get into the bill? I mean, I guess it's well, hard to say, but what do you think? Well, I will say this. I know that the, for the budget reconciliation process, the parliamentary process that only requires 50 votes of the Senate, um, not the 60 votes because the 60 votes is for the bill. And so there are 50 Democrats. Um, and so uh, there are some Democrats that have some issues of uh, some issues on the non-immigration side of the bill, uh, non-immigration side of their reconciliation process. Um, and so, you know, there is there is not all Democrats are aligned on the reconciliation process. But if we can get the Democrats, all 50 of them to vote yes on it, then it's passing. And I will say that people who work on the Hill, I have some friends who work on the Hill and some activist friends who keep their are their ear on the floor on some of this stuff. And they they are saying that this is the closest it has ever been. Wow. To pass some level of the Dream Act. Now, I have been disappointed many, 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 many times over of the failing of the to pass the Dream Act, which is essentially will give legal permanent residency or what's called green cards to individuals who were brought to the United States as children. Um, it, it you know it, it gets close and it gets close and it gets close and it and it fails. So I am cautiously optimistic because I've been down this road before. Um, it, not not this close, not this close, but it's been we've been down this road before. Um, but it looks like it's very, 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 very possible. And so right now what we're doing is that we're mobilizing. We're getting activists together. We're getting people together. We're, we're mobilizing political arms to make sure that we're pressing on the Democrats to do the right thing. And if that happens, then it would mean a humongous relief for a lot of people. Not everyone is going to be included, unfortunately, but it's a step in the right direction. Um. What can we do? What can listeners do to support this? Um, the calling, um, uh, I think, you know, the senators are really need pushing. Um, I think Senator Manchin is the one, like a, a Democratic senator that really needs a lot of pushing. Um, and, um, you know, kind of, it and I, I guess I would also say, like, just be ready to do some old school taking to the streets. Like, I cannot emphasize enough how much it is that activism works. And not just like on the keyboard, like hashtag whatever, act, getting off the chair and going out and participating on incidents. And, and, and being actively involved in these are being organized on Facebook. These are being organized on 
on um, on Twitter, um, and 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 really just going out there and having power, uh, having power in numbers. And so I would encourage people to be willing to do that if the opportunity presents itself. Um, but also good old fashioned phone calls. Um, phone calls of uh, calling your representatives and saying, hey, we want uh, a pathway to citizenship for essential workers, for TPS members or recipients, the DACA recipients, the dreamers, um, to farm workers, the people who picked the food we eat while we were safe inside during the pandemic. Mm, yes. um, uh, we want a pathway to citizenship for them and make sure that they know that the constituents want it. I think that that's a big thing that they could do. Well, I hope this passes. Um, it's needed. It's, it's, I always say it's so odd that these things are even controversial. Like, how is it that if somebody was brought here as a child, that we don't already have legislation in place that allows that person to get status? Because as it stands now, the only thing that we have is DACA, which is a temporary Band-Aid. Um, and right now, Texas is putting a stop to that. Um, what's going on in the Texas case? Um, well, Texas, the Supreme Court, when we took the case of the, when we took the case of the Supreme Court for DACA, uh, um, there was a lot of questions that, that the court granted cert on, which is that they wanted to take up. Uh, ultimately they decided the case on saying that the way in which the President Trump ended the program was unlawful. In other words, that um, they couldn't end the program the way that they ended it. And so the program was reinstated. There was a question that was left open, though, about whether DACA was a legal program to begin with, regardless as to whether it was ended the right way. And so that is what the Texas court is now attempting to decide. And the Texas court um, has decided that the DACA program is illegal. But as the case gets appealed, um, there is currently a, um, I want to call it a stay, a partial stay, which is a freeze on the order. So individuals who have DACA now can continue to renew, but it won't accept new applicants. And so that is, um, that's kind of where we're at in that DACA case. And now we were, we're obviously involved in the DACA litigation. Um, it's no longer against the Department of Justice. It's now um, against the state of Texas, but that's kind of where we are. Oh, and I guess I will say this too, uh, going back to your, to your other question about what can listeners do? I cannot emphasize enough how much um, the, the pursuit of human rights for immigrants really starts on a local political level. If a, if a municipality or a county passes immigrant friendly statutes, like we're not like the, the we're gonna let the criminal system, the criminal justice system um, resolve any kind of criminal disputes that are, and we're not gonna let ICE get involved here. So we're not gonna allow ICE to deport people and we're gonna have ICE coming to our jails and we're gonna do that. If, if we get a county to do that, we can get a state to do that. Um, and and then we won't have circumstances like Texas where they're constantly suing to try to push a anti-immigrant agenda. Um, and if we can get a state to be able to pass immigrant-friendly uh, statutes, then we can have the nation pass immigrant nation statutes. So uh, it really does start at a local level. 
Yes, I agree with that. I mean, I'm even thinking about, um, because I did criminal um, defense, which I still do, and um, deportation defense at the same time, although I don't do that anymore, um, where we had certain counties that county jails that were notorious for calling they and they were so racist because i had undocumented canadians but they never (laughs) called in white people for ice they only if you were brown they would call you in to see if you were undocumented or documented to ice and then other county jails never called ice it didn't matter what the color of your skin was what language you spoke it didn't matter they would never bother calling ice at all so those people even if they were arrested for or cited for something minor or serious uh, driving without privileges which is now an infraction in idaho but um they wouldn't have ice called so i definitely um agree with that and that's something to to keep in mind for myself that it really it's not just this big national stage i mean it does start at local levels and even the local laws and um whether the county jail is going to be calling ice or not or even those things i mean that's a huge that's a huge deal So is there anything else that you want um, people to know about you, your story, about um, immigrant rights in general before we go? Um, Really that, you know, the, the, a a lot of the discussion around immigrants' rights, you know, it's, it's changing in the right direction. You know, if you were to ask anybody kind of any lay person 10 years ago, 2011, whether any any portion of the undocumented population should be allowed to stay in the United States, I think by and large, it would get a resounding no. Now, there is at least some acceptance to some members of that community, whether it's DOC recipients, DREAMers, farm workers, essential workers, whatever. So we are stepping into the right direction. And but it's really like the power of people that let push that that direction and not just activists or immigration lawyer practitioners, but allies who show up for each other um, and and really have a strength in numbers. And I really saw that in Daniel's case, when in, in Daniel's case, when we sued in federal court and had our first hearing in federal court, there was about 3000 people that showed up outside of the court in signs, in protests, they took time off work, time off their day to come on like on 11 o'clock on a Wednesday. It was weird. And they showed up. And because of that public pressure, I have no doubt in my mind that that really shaped the way that the case went. And so for anybody who's listening, um, we, you are very welcomed in our space as we try to pursue human rights for immigrants. And we really hope that you join us. Thank you, Luis. Um, And I'm also sure that people, as they become more learned about the subject, they'll realize that, because before I was aware about the subject, I didn't realize how many people in my actual life were either undocumented, had been undocumented at one point, were a resident, they were something that they were not a citizen. And because it's not talked about, um, or because you went to school with that person and grew up with that person and went to high school with them or went to college, you know, I bet every person in this country knows somebody that's undocumented. They might not know that they're undocumented, but they know somebody that's been affected by the system. Would you agree with that? 
I would 100% agree that there is somebody who you know that's being impacted by this. A loved one with a partner, a family member, a friend, a coworker. It's going to be one of your students. It's going to be, um, you know, one of your, uh, the people who um, serves you coffee, who serves your food, who makes sure that there's um, enough food stocked in the grocery stores for you to have. It, it, it's, it's connected. Um, and one more thing that I really want to do for, for those who are able to, um, there's a lot of really good people doing a lot of really good work um, and they do not do it for the money. And there's a lot of really good nonprofits that really thrive and are maintained by the support and donations of others. So one big plug I wanted to push is for this nonprofit as part of the, um, the National uh, uh, Immigrations Guild. No, so excuse me, the National Lawyers Guild. Um, and it's called the NIP, the National Immigration Project, as part of the National Lawyers Guild. And they do amazing work for some of the most vulnerable populations within the immigrant community. And so, um, again, NIP, the National Immigration Project, if you Google them, they'll show up. Um, police are willing to talk $5, $10, uh, $15, whatever you can. Right now, the, uh, the executive director of NIP is... Um, this amazing, brilliant lawyer. Her name is Serene. She is uh, compassionate in all the right ways, aggressive in court in all the right ways, and an all-around amazing human being. And she is now leading uh, the National Immigration Project. And um, and uh, it's a wonderful nonprofit to to be able to you know um, share five dollars with. So please. I looked them up and and I will take it as a big personal favor if you do. Thank you, Luis. Um, yes, I concur with supporting that. Um, that's one way if uh, we don't, we're not having access to a protest or whatever, because as being an attorney myself, we know that these, um, these, the stuff is, is a lot of times one in federal court. I mean, even Daniel's case or um, DACA, all the litigation that you did on that, that you're continuing to having to do, um, it takes fights in court over and over and over and over again. And so many people fall through the cracks because they aren't entitled to um, what a public defender or something in these immigration proceedings. And so we need um, the NIP and the National Lawyers Guild to not only litigate these policy issues, but um, representation as well. So thank you so much, Luis, um, for coming on the podcast. And um, right. I guess what I mean, there, there are two ways if you want to follow <laughs> the work that we do and just stay on top of things. And if you're curious about the the work that's happening at large, there's two places you can follow me. One of them is on Twitter. Um, and the handle is L Cortez Romero, L C O R T E S R O M E R O. Um, and then there's also my Instagram and that's just at Luis Cortez. I got my Instagram a, a while, while back. So I was very surprised that I was able to just get my name, but it's at Luis Cortez, L-U-I-S-C-O-R-T-E-S. And I try to post updates on there, um, about what's happening just with the work that we're doing. Um, and the, what's happening kind of at large with activism, the policy changes, um, the good and the bad and the ugly. So feel free to, uh, to follow me on there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dina, for having me. This has been a lot of fun. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you liked it, remember to subscribe, rate, and review. To find out more, you can visit my Instagram at Finding Galileo or my website, dinatavinarime.com, where you can ask me questions or send me topic suggestions. Thank you for listening.